0: This is episode 16 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, I talk about the magician who was summoned to Washington, D.C. by Abraham Lincoln. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. My name is Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective and this is episode 16. If you're new to the show or just stumbled upon us and you're wondering what it's all about, well, my podcast uh, here, I talk about magic history, or basically the history of magicians. Um, This is not a witchcraft or black magic or anything like that podcast. Um, I'm speaking about conjuring, ledger domain, prestidigitation, and the like. You might also consider this a history of theater and maybe even a history of show business as well, because both of those apply. Now, uh, first off, I want to uh, relay a happy belated birthday to Frederick Eugene Powell, the Dean of American Magicians. He was born on March 1st, 1856. And speaking of Powell, I just finished the book by Thomas Ewing called Powell, Master of Magic and Mystery, published by 1878press.com. And I wrote a short review uh, of the book on my blog, which is themagicdetective.com, so Uh, You can find that over there. But suffice to say, I loved the book. And I certainly encourage anyone who's interested in magic history and magicians to pick up a copy of the book. Because sadly, Frederick Eugene Powell has been mainly forgotten today, but he really was an amazing character from our history. So check that out uh, if you can. It's available through 1878press.com, but I also noticed that uh, Hocus Pocus had it for sale. I think Penguin Magic had it for sale, and Stevens Magic had it for sale as well. So you could check it out on any of those uh, places. So look through to your favorite dealer for the book. I must also mention that the past couple weeks have been very difficult for the world of magic. Just this month alone, we've lost Steve Duschek, Marshall Brodine, and Johnny Thompson, the great Tom Sony. I'd like to go ahead and start really quickly with uh, Marshall Brodine. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that the path to becoming a magician was certainly made easier thanks to Marshall He was the creator of TV Magic and TV Magic Cards. As a matter of fact, I want you to listen to this iconic commercial. Hi, I'm Marshall Brodine, a professional magician. You know, most magic tricks are easy once you know the secret. Now take magic cards. You don't have to be a magician to perform all kinds of amazing card tricks because it works by itself. Have someone take a card, place it back in the deck, tap the deck, it comes to the top, put it back in the middle, and it's back on top again. Make two or three piles. Whatever pile they point to, the card is there. Now, for more fun, take the top card, tap it, and it changes to their card. Place it on the bottom, and they all change to their card. Cut the deck, and they're all different again. Six or 60, you can work TV Magic cards, the mechanical deck that works all by itself. Wow, does that bring back some memories? Oh my goodness! I can still recall having my parents drive me to a local drugstore uh, because uh, I knew that this drugstore had TV magic sets, and I went in and I bought one with my own money as a kid and TV magic something else. Let me tell you a little bit about Marshall. He was born July tenth, nineteen thirty four, in Chicago. He saw his first magician when when one came to his school. Imagine that, a school show magician-inspired Marshall Brodine. And as with many of us, that was all it took for him to get interested in learning magic. And because he lived in Chicago, he frequented many of the shops that were in that town, including Ireland's, Joe Berg's, Abbott's in Chicago, and others. In fact, one of those others was the Chicago Magic Center, where Marshall eventually became a demonstrator at the age of 15. From there, he worked at an amusement park as a sideshow magician, and eventually he learned to become a sideshow barker. After this, he went into nightclubs and bars doing close-up magic. He worked along with uh, Senator Crandall. Uh, there's a great story that Marshall tells about doing magic at a nightclub. And one evening he walks up to a, a couple of guys in the club and he's holding a birdcage. And he says, hey, watch the birdcage. And boom, suddenly it vanishes. And uh, <laughs> one of the guys speaks up and he says, hey, where'd it go? And Marshall replies, it's gone, it's magic. <laughs> and the guy says, uh, where did the damn cage go? And Marshall says, well, I, I, I can't tell you, that's a trade secret. And the guy pulls out a gun Tocks it, and puts it up to Marshall's forehead and says, where did it go? And as you might imagine, that gentleman actually got to learn the secret of where the cage went. <laughs> a funny story. Uh, a short time later, he was drafted into the military and quickly was moved to the entertainment section of the special services division at Fort Carson, Colorado. Imagine that, you're drafted into the military and your job is to entertain Oh, man, that's cool. Around 1967, he was asked to perform on WGN TV's Bozo Show, and he was so well-liked that uh, they brought him back often. Eventually, Marshall pitched them on an idea of a comic wizard character, and over time, that character became Wizzo the Wizard. He became a regular addition to the Bozo Show and lasted until 1994. But the thing we most uh, know Marshall for, of course, are TV Magic cards and TV Magic sets. This was an idea Marshall had from seeing guys pitch Svengali decks back in his sideshow days. And he always wondered, what would happen if we sold them on TV? So he and a buddy put up the money for the commercial. And it was a risky venture, but um, one that made Marshall very wealthy, and it also exposed magic to countless young kids, many of whom eventually became full-time entertainers. And I have a tiny connection to the TV magic set uh, business and um, beyond just buying one as a kid. I was hired uh, by Harmony Toy Company to pitch magic sets at numerous toy stores, and uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. It was in the uh, Northern Virginia... Maryland, um, DC area. And I got a, a call from them one day and they said, uh, Marshall was very pleased with my work though. Uh, confidentially I will say I never met him. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And I, I, um, I actually, they sold the business harmony, sold it to somebody else. And, um, the new company Cateco Cataco was the name of that company. Um, I ended up doing the same thing with Cateco for a number of years. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Marshall Brodine was an icon in the business, and he certainly will be missed. He passed away on March eighth, 2019. Uh, The next fellow who passed away, Steve Dushek, I wish I could give you a really good overview of his life, but I I couldn't find one. Um, He was featured on the cover of the January 1989 issue of Tannen's Magic Manuscript, but I don't have a copy handy, so... I couldn't go through that to give you his life story. Um, I do remember seeing Steve Lecture at my very first magic convention, the very first one I ever attended in Washington. I I remember his magic was brilliant. Uh, It was also simple. It was mind-boggling. He was probably best known for Wonder Bar, which was a kind of a floating... It looked like a little metal bar that floated in the air. And, uh, and also, uh, another one of his popular effects was called Waltzing Matilda, which was a really unusual version of a dancing handkerchief. Though I have to say, my personal favorite was an effect that he taught in his lecture, and I still remember the feeling that it gave me. I just was, I couldn't believe what I saw. He had a handful of pennies and he picked one of the pennies up and he set it on the table and, and then he took the pennies and he tossed them into his other cupped hand and he closed the hand very tightly. And then when he opened his fingers, all of those pennies, that whole handful of pennies had all changed into dimes and he dropped them all on the table and you could see indeed they were all real dimes. It, it was just crazy very visual very amazing and of course it had a very simple explanation which i'm not going to give you because i don't do that here but uh, oh it was great and from what i heard just doing a little bit of research on steve he actually got out of magic because he was tired of people ripping him off i looked online i could only find one video of steve uh on the internet and he was doing some sort of shrinking card routine so you can check that out on youtube it's there He was an amazing guy, and I'm sorry things turned out the way they did. Uh, May you rest in peace, Steve Dushek. Finally, we come to Johnny Thompson. He passed away just a few days. Well, it's been over a week or so now. And his death really hit the magic world very hard. And don't get me wrong. Every magician that passes, uh, it affects us all. But Johnny... Um, Johnny was more than a magician. He was, he was a bridge to another time, a connection to an era of magic that, that we can only read about. Like, he knew people personally like Di Vernon, Charlie Miller, Pop Krieger, Senator Crandall, Jimmy Grippo, John Scarney, many others. Uh, and he himself, he rose to that same sort of fame that all of those ha- people had. And he was beloved without a doubt by the magic community in fact i think it's impossible to find anyone who has a bad word to say about johnny thompson you just won't find them Uh, apparently he was exceptionally kind very giving thoughtful and the consummate magician he was also adept at many different kinds of magic. And he tells a story uh, of getting the book uh, expert at the card table as a young boy and learning all the material in the book. And also when he was uh, when he was young, he saw um, the Mexican magician Cantu, who was the first magician to produce doves in his show. And Johnny saw that and he began to develop a bird act so the expert at the card table was really his first foray into uh any sort of magic although he also mentions that the reason he got that book was he saw a movie about a uh riverboat gambler so that was sort of how that came about but you know there was magic in the book as well so that's where johnny began his uh foray into magic and like i said Uh, Cantu Seeing Cantu do doves inspired Johnny to get into that. In 1947, he happened to uh, see a harmonica act and decided he wanted to learn to play the harmonica. And it turns out he was very good. Uh, So he formed a trio with two other friends. At some point, uh, the biggest harmonica act in show business contacted Johnny to see if he would fill in for one of their sick members. This was the Harmonic Cats, that was the name of this act. He was with them off and on until the late 1950s. And then, this, I didn't realize this, then along comes Marshall Brodine, who helps Johnny get into the trade show business. And Marshall uh, also helped Johnny get on the, the Bozo show a few years later. In the 1970s, Johnny dropped out of the trade show business, left the Bozo show, and went back to his Dove Act. But this time, he created a character around the act, the great Tom Sony. Uh, The comedy act was the great Thompsonian company. And the company, of course, was his wife, Pamela Hayes, who was an actress in her own right and became not just an assistant to Johnny, but really, um, a very important character in their act. And they performed all over the world and were in high demand for many, 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 many years. Johnny's contribution to magic is far beyond that. And in the future, I will do a podcast devoted to Johnny Thompson, but for now, let me just end with, he was born July 27th, 1934. He passed away March 9th, 2019. Johnny Thompson, you are one amazing man. Today is March 24th, 2019. It's the birth date of Harry Houdini. He was born this day in Budapest, Hungary in the year 1874, which makes him a whopping 145 years old. And frankly, he doesn't look a day over 52. Uh, if, by the way, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Houdini's early life, you can listen to podcast number five, which is the starter guide to Houdini. But in honor of Houdini's birthday, I would like to mention one of my pet peeves, which no doubt would be one of his, uh, if he were alive. And if he were alive, he'd be the oldest living man in history at 145. Anyway, uh, what I wanted to discuss is this persistent chatter that Houdini was a bad magician. And as best I can gauge it, uh, this rumor came about mainly because of Di Vernon and a number of Houdini's contemporaries who disliked him. And you could probably add a smattering of Houdini's own ego into the mix for good measure. Di Vernon knew Houdini, and he had no respect for Houdini as a magician. In fact, he would often say that Houdini wasn't a magician at all, he was an escape artist. Well, he was an escape artist, but he was also a magician. Vernon also said... Houdini thought he was the smartest man who ever lived. He'd think he was doing you a big favor if he gave you one of his calling cards. He was a ruthless egomaniac. He could not stand any other magician. He tried to get a monopoly on magic. Vernon even goes as far as saying every great magician of his period hated Houdini. This wasn't exactly true, but there were some that hated Houdini. The great Raymond, for example, was no fan of Harry Houdini. Harry Blackstone Sr., also not a fan of, uh, Houdini and Dante, especially, I, I think you could say he hated Houdini. So it is true that there were some magicians of that time period that did not like Houdini, but there were others that, uh, you know, that did enjoy a, a good friendship with Houdini as well. Um, but I think his, uh, he he was an egotist to a point, and even that, I, the more I read about it, the more I think, um, was he really an egotist or was he just trying to protect his business? Uh, you know, Houdini was, um, he was, a, created a brand before we were even using that terminology. And he did everything he could to protect his brand. He didn't want other people doing escape acts because... Frankly, he had really cornered the market on that. So he protected it with all he had. He wanted to appear to be the, the best magician of the time. And if that's your goal, you're going to do everything you can to remain relevant. And in the eye of the public, if that means having enormous magic posters, so be it. If that means being in the newspaper all the time, then so be it. I mean, Houdini knew that, uh, I mean, that's his livelihood. That's what he did. That's, you know, that's his bread and butter. So he's going to do everything he can to make sure that remains a success throughout his entire career. I think that has a lot to do with his ego. Now, granted, I think in some de- in some areas he did, you know, kind of go over that a little bit. And he maybe thought, yeah, I am the greatest. I mean, I've read some of the um, Elliot's Last Legacy where Houdini actually thinks he's the greatest card man of the era. And I think that's a stretch, considering some of the other folks that were around, but okay, Um, I'll cut him some slack there. This whole idea of Houdini being a bad magician, not a very good magician or only a fair magician, I think is is unfair. And for the benefit of those who poo-poo Houdini as a magician, let me just bring up the following. The East Indian Needle Trick. The Metamorphosis, the Straitjacket Escape, the Water Torture Cell, the Vanishing Elephant, Walking Through a Brick Wall, the Houdini Card Act. I mean, I could go on, but I mean, those are just some great examples of really good, strong, solid magic that Houdini put on the map. Many of these routines are still done by magicians today. Houdini was the one that made them popular. How many people have used a sub-trunk in their act since Houdini was alive? And in this, And honestly, think about this Would that routine even have remained popular Had it not been for Houdini Let's take a look at Doug Henning Doug Henning did the, the Metamorphosis as It was one of his favorite routines But his first special He did Houdini's Water Torture Cell His next TV special He did The Vanishing Elephant The next TV special He did Walking Through a Brick Wall I mean, they, these routines made his career uh, David Copperfield uh, David Copperfield did his own version of, uh, of a water torture cell on one of his older specials. Uh, he also took this concept of making enormous objects, a la The Vanishing Elephant, uh, making enormous objects disappear. Uh, when he made a plane disappear and later the Statue of Liberty disappear. Teller of Penn and Teller does The Needles. And um, by the way, Penn and Teller also featured a straitjacket escape early in their careers. And Ricky Jay, Ricky J. used to toss a card up in the air like a boomerang and then cut it in half with a giant pair of scissors. And that, my friends, is right out of Houdini's card act. I'd say Houdini's choice of material alone makes the case for his magic being solid. Now, granted, uh, maybe not every one of these things was spectacular. And when I say that, I'm thinking mainly of the vanishing elephant because of the methodology. But, um, Hey, but for pure publicity purposes, it couldn't be beat. Uh, Now Houdini wasn't a a card mechanic like Vernon and he wasn't a master manipulator like Cardini, nor was he a grand illusionist like Thurston or David Copperfield. He, but he, he had, he had his own style And if there's any fault that Houdini made, it was in trying to do standard tricks in his three-in-one show that really weren't Houdini tricks. Uh, Well, well, let's put it this way. When he did, you know, his own material, that that was perfect. That was Houdini stuff. I I think... Let's put it this way. Siegfried of Siegfried and Roy. He knew instinctively what was a Siegfried and Roy trick and what wasn't. And anything that wasn't, they stayed away from. And really, to some degree, Doug Henning knew this as well. Doug Henning back in the day was offered the vanishing Statue of Liberty routine, but he turned it down. He understood that making the Statue of Liberty disappear wasn't really, wasn't a Doug Henning trick quite frankly. But it surely was a David Copperfield trick. Uh, Houdini very well might have been able to do a lot of his standard magic in the three-in-one show if his presentations fit his style more. If you look at the historical record of the routines that Houdini did and and routines he became famous for, I mean, metamorphosis, a straitjacket escape, hanging straitjacket escape, outdoor escape stunts. I mean, any magician that tries to get, you know, famous on TV for the most part, I mean, Shin Lim is an exception, <laughs> but, uh, everybody's, you know, they, they used to, they, everybody used to do, um, you know, the dangerous escape. That was the big hook for TV specials. Uh, Chris Angel did it. I mean, um, David Blaine does that and not necessarily escapes, but he, you know, he's taken a page out of Houdini's book with these, uh, uh, these endurance stunt things that he's done. So, I mean, it's, I, I, I think it's disingenuous to say that Houdini was not a good uh, magician. I think that's uh, incorrect. Was he the greatest magician of all time? Um, no. But you can't dismiss his popularity, his charisma, his sheer determination to stay on top, even these many years later after he has died. Uh, It's a feat that no other magician has been able to do. And now let's get into our feature. Horatio Green Cook was born 1844 in Norwich, Connecticut. As a youth, his family moved around a bit, finally settling in Iowa. In 1861, Horatio was working as a teacher. In 1862, Horatio, who would go by the name Harry, enlisted in the Union Army he had excellent penmanship and was also a fine marksman and before long he was writing correspondence for various generals in the union army among them general us grant due to cook's ability as a penman uh, he soon became uh, he came to the notice of various people in washington dc his ability as a marksman also played a part in his change in career and in rank. He went from being a private in the Union Army to being selected to be captain of Lincoln's Federal Scouts. He always carried with him a, an autographed letter from Abraham Lincoln informing him that he had been selected to be one of his Special Scouts. In 1863, he fell under the command of Major General Ulysses S. Grant, during the Siege of Vicksburg. The surrender of Vicksburg by the Confederate Army gave control of the Mississippi River to the Union Army and basically split the Confederacy in half. This event, along with the Battle of Gettysburg, were the two turning points in the war for the Union. On May 1st, 1864, Harry Cook was ordered to appear before Edward Stanton. He was the Secretary of War in Washington, D.C., When Cook arrived, he found that, along with Stanton, was General William Tecumseh Sherman, General Hancock, Senator uh, Robert Ingersoll, and President Abraham Lincoln. They had heard of the young scouts' unusual ability to free himself from restraints, and they were curious. So they offered up a bit of a challenge. They tied him up with 50 feet of rope, and he was securely tied. And Cook asked Lincoln walk 10 feet away, and when you get 10 feet away, turn and walk back towards me. But before Lincoln could walk back, Cook had already freed himself. According to the Los Angeles Evening Express newspaper, Lincoln was amazed and jubilated. Lincoln said to Cook, here, my boy, keep this to remember Uncle Abe by. And Lincoln gave uh, Cook a $2 bill, and Harry kept that uh, $2 bill his entire life. In the fall of 1864, Harry was assigned to join General Sheridan in Winchester, Virginia. And on October 19th, Harry Cook and six other scouts were captured by Mosby's raiders under the command of the Grey Ghost, John Singleton Mosby. Mosby was notorious for his stealth-like raids against the Union forces. When his band of raiders captured Harry Cook and his fellow scouts, they took all their possessions as well, in Cook's pocket, was the personal letter from Lincoln appointing him to the position of Federal Scout. a cherished woman. In Mosby's eyes, Cook was a spy and was sentenced to be hanged along with his other scouts. They were to get an early morning hanging, but their final evening on earth would be spent tied to a tree. Now, being the escape artist that he was, Cook quietly freed himself from the ropes and then proceeded to free his fellow prisoners and returned back to the Union side under the cover of darkness. Due to the fact that not all of his fellow scouts could swim, they had to split up. Three swam across the Potomac River, and others made their way through the woods. One of the scouts, uh, who was swimming, later drowned trying to cross Harper's Ferry Canal. Cook and his companion finally made it back to the Union camp. From there, he took some men back to try and find the scouts who chose to make their way through the woods, but because they couldn't swim, they were eventually discovered hanged and full of bullets. So in the end, only Cook and one of the other scouts made it to safety. Harry had always been bothered by the theft of his Lincoln letter by Mosby's Raiders and decided to try and get a copy from the president himself. So on April 14th, 1865, Cook went to the White House in Washington to see Mr. Lincoln. And upon arriving at the White House, he was told that Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln had just left for the evening. They were on their way to Ford's Theater. Harry Cook went to Ford's Theater as well, where the president and the first lady were watching the play Our American Cousin. A short time after Harry Cook arrived, a loud shot rang out. And, well, the rest is history. Cook was there in the audience as John Wilkes Booth shot the president and then jumped to the stage and out the back doors of Ford's Theater. I want to add one additional bit of history. When Cook had been captured by Mosby's raiders in October of 1864, one of the men serving in the Union was Lewis Powell. Powell, who would later be involved in the plot to assassinate President Lincoln, he was also known as Lewis Payne, His job was to kill Secretary of State William Seward. His attempt failed, but he was later hanged along with his other co-conspirators. So here you've got like this double connection to Lincoln's assassination. You've got uh, Lewis Powell working uh, with Mosby's Raiders and capturing Harry Cook, and then later Harry Cook actually being at Ford's Theater when Lincoln died. It's hard to say when Harry Cook got his interest in magic or when he developed the ability to escape from ropes. One thing is for certain, he, ha- he had the ability to escape like no one before him in few cents. After the Civil War ended, Horatio Green Cook became Professor Harry Cook and worked as a professional magician and celebrated King of the Spirit Exposers. Years later, he would become president of the Los Angeles Society of Magicians and would obtain the new moniker, the Oldest Living Magician. His favorite trick throughout his entire life was the linking rings, and apparently his routine was one to wonder over. He was also very good friends with Harry Keller. In fact, he was one of the pallbearers at Harry Keller's funeral. On May 1st, 1924, at the age of 80, Harry Cook duplicated his feat of escaping from 50 feet of rope from uh, for the Los Angeles area magicians. During this exhibition, Harry Cook wore his blue Union Army uniform, the same one he wore during the Civil War. The result was exactly as it had been 60 years before when he presented the stunt before President Lincoln and his cabinet. He escaped. A little over a month later, Horatio Green Cook passed away on June 17th. 1924. And I should mention that uh, Cook was um, also friends with Harry Houdini. Uh, Houdini looked up to Cook and I, I think it was probably sort of a twofold thing. One, because uh, Houdini had admiration for older magicians. And number two, Cook actually knew Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln was Houdini's childhood hero. So there was a sort of a double connection there. Now I do want to mention something very important, and that is, um, if you go through the histories, uh, the books, history books of magic, um, it's very hard to find any mention of Harry Cook. I went through um, David Price's history book. I went through the Illustrated History of Magic. A number of other books. And there's no mention of Cook in any of them. And then I started going through the Houdini biographies, and I couldn't find a mention of Cook until I got to the, the most recent biography by Bill Kalush and Larry Sloman. There is a, a brief paragraph in there about Professor Harry Cook. Thankfully, magician Mark Cannon wrote an article back in April of 2006 for the MUM magazine the Society of American Magicians. He wrote about Cook's life. The way he found out about it, he had met one of Harry Cook's daughters at one of his shows. And Harry Cook's daughter gave Mark Cannon Cook's personal scrapbook. So he Harry has this scrapbook of all this stuff about this unknown magician that nobody knows about. And he writes this... uh, incredible piece for the uh, for the Mum magazine. That's how I found out about Cook as well. Now, I will say that you can see Cook's name in the Sphinx and other magazines of the time, but it's a very sh- small mention of Harry Cook, and you don't really get the full picture of who he was. There were newspaper articles about cook back in the day but again they're scattered to time and unless you're really searching for that particular person you you would never find them so that my friends is the story of professor harry cook horatio green cook the man who was there the night lincoln was assassinated it's a fascinating story if you would like to find out more about harry cook go to my blog at themagicdetective.com and in the search engine, just type in Cook, C-O-O-K-E. And you'll see a number of uh, articles that I wrote on Harry Cook there. So I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you did, please like the episode. And there are different ways to do that depending upon how you're listening. I know on uh, Podbean, um, you can, there's a little heart underneath the podcast that you can click to tell people that you liked it on um iTunes, I believe you can give it five stars. I don't know Stitcher and um, some of these others. I don't know what the process is to like it, but there should be a button there, a thumbs up button or something like that. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, that'd be great. If you would like to leave um, a review, uh, some comments about this episode or any of the previous episodes, please do that as well. I always like to hear positive comments. If you have a negative comment about the podcast, uh, don't leave it in a comment, but send me an email at info at carnegie magic.com. I'd be happy to hear any sort of constructive criticism and um, i always open to that. Always looking to improve the podcast as best I can. So um, please do that. Now, there's something that uh, I do need to bring up and that is the contest from last, uh, my last podcast. I believe I asked the question who the senator was that um, proposed the bill before Congress, the anti-fortune-telling bill that Houdini was involved in. That The answer to that is Saul Bloom. We do have a winner of that contest, but I have not yet contacted the winner, so I will be doing that shortly. So uh, somebody out there, hey, you're a winner. You've won a piece of magic history. So I will send you an email here shortly and let you know that you won and then get your item in the mail. So um, let me see what else. Let's go ahead and do one more contest. This will be, I'll give the prize away on episode 17. The question is, Survey Leroy. before he was famous for the Monarchs of Magic, performed with a group called the Triple Alliance. Name one of the other two magicians that were involved in the Triple Alliance. And you can send me an email at info at carnegiemagic.com with the answer. Just put in the subject line contest and uh, then just put your answer in there. If you know one uh, of the two other magicians and um, I'm going to uh, let's see, we'll get, you know what, we'll do the first person that gets back with me this time instead of the fifth, we'll do the first person that gets back with me. So you could win a piece of authentic magic history. Also, really quickly, I want to give a big shout out to uh, Marshall Brodeen's website, which is Marshall Brodeen's Amazing Magic.com, where if you want, you can go on and buy a really cool uh, TV Magic t shirt, which I did. There's two different kinds there's one with the red TV Magic logo, and then there's one with the purple uh, TV Magic logo, and that one is to support. Alzheimer's care and Alzheimer's research. So uh, if you want, I, I would encourage you to do that. It, again, it's uh, Ray Marshall Brodeen's AmazingMagic.com Go there and check that out. And That's going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.